0: Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB!
1: Action! Welcome to Monorail Radio episode number 244. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are here this week to discuss Cars. This is a film that... You would have thought we would have done it a while ago, but it's like, it's weird because we try to line these things up with anniversaries, but it never really had a big anniversary for us to celebrate. So we were talking about it and we said, well, you know, summertime, you think road trip, you think Route 66 is, you know, that is like the road trip, like capital of the world. Now is as good a time as any to talk about cars.
2: Yes, especially coming off of our recent review of IndieWire's article, which ranked all of the Pixar films, and I think this was one of the most egregious ones, because out of the 27 Pixar films, they put it at 20, and we were shocked.
1: Flabbergasted.
2: Because for me, this wasn't one that I grew up on. It came out in 2006. I was in college, but it was an instant favorite.
1: I did not see this for many years, and you would have thought that I would have been on top of this, given my affinity for not only Disney, but also NASCAR, but I was 20 years old. I I wasn't rushing out to the movie theaters to see the latest and greatest from Disney and Pixar, so I don't think I saw this film for the first time. Was it with me? It was, And I'm trying to remember if it was in preparation of our first trip to Disney World.
2: Might have been in prep for our trip to Disneyland.
1: No, I had seen, I have had to have seen Cars before then. I definitely saw it before then. I think that we were playing catch Yeah, no, because we
2: were married at that point. That was 2018 when we did Disneyland.
1: I think I watched this in preparation of our 2011 trip. Not that there was really any Cars other than Lightning McQueen being at Uh, Lights, Motors, Action. I think that we were just catching up with Disney films, and it came up that this is one that I had missed, and you were shocked to learn that I had never seen this film. Well, my question is, was the film worth the wait? Did IndieWire actually get it wrong in retrospect? That, on top of many other things, is what we are here to discuss today.
2: This episode is sponsored by Fierce Fox Co., designers of handmade silkscreen shirts. Fierce Fox has a t-shirt, tank top, hoodie, or crew neck for every fandom. So whether it's the movies or theme parks, princesses or villains, the MCU or Star Wars, everyone will find something they love. The designs range from subtle quotes from our favorite films to iconic characters we can wear proudly in so many different styles, such as sketchbook and concert tees. Listeners of Monoreal Radio can get a 20% discount using the code MONOREAL at checkout. Visit FierceFoxCo.com to check out all of the collections.
1: We meet Lightning McQueen, a rookie sensation race car with a poor attitude and a big ego. The King Strip Weather's... Chick Hicks and Lightning are in a three-way tie for the points lead heading into the Dynaco 400 and a shot at the Piston Cup. The King is set to retire and both Chick and Lightning are hoping to land his Dynaco sponsorship. Refusing to listen to his pit crew and get fresh tires, Lightning looks like the clear winner until his tires blow, leading to a three-way tie and a tiebreaker race in California the following week. Rushing to beat Chick to California to meet with the Dynaco reps, Lightning forces his hauler, Mac, to drive all night, but Mac falls asleep and Lightning is accidentally released out of the back of the hauler and stranded on the interstate. He gets lost following the wrong truck and finds himself on Route 66, where he is arrested for speeding, evading arrest, and destruction of private and public property in the town of Radiator Springs. Meanwhile, McQueen's disappearance has become international news. Lightning meets Mater, a lonely tow truck who only wants to befriend Lightning McQueen. Lightning is brought to traffic court where Judge Doc Hudson is ready to let him go as he doesn't want a race car in their town. However, Sally, the town attorney, rallies him to sentence McQueen to community service and help him fix the road that he destroyed. Lightning is hooked up to a road paver named Bessie and tries to rush his task to get to California. However, he ends up doing such a poor job that he has to restart. Doc challenges Lightning to a race and offers to free him if he can beat him. And Lightning's ego again costs him the race and he goes back to paving. After a successful night of paving, Lightning tries to make the turn that cost him the race against Doc. So Doc tries to coach him. But Lightning refuses to listen. As the road improves, the cars of Radiator Springs also spruce up their homes and businesses. That night, Mater takes Lightning tractor tipping, and Lightning talks about Mater with Sally, who invites him to stay at the uh, Cozy Cone Motel. The next day, Lightning discovers Doc's garage, where he finds three piston cups when Lightning realizes that he is the Hudson Hornet, he asks Doc for help, but Doc refuses to give him another chance. He and Sally go for a drive where she tells him that she left L.A. for the peace and quiet of Radiator Springs. We also learn that the construction of the interstate eliminated traffic during uh, are driving through Radiator Springs, leaving the town desolate and depressed. After tractor tipping gone bad, the tractors storm the town. And when Lightning sets off to retrieve one, he sees Doc out for a drive practicing his dormant racing skills. We learn that Doc had a wreck in 1954, but the sponsors moved on to the next car, so he left the racing world. Doc and Lightning argue about telling the truth and caring for others, so Lightning finishes paving the road overnight and leaves without saying goodbye, or so they thought. Lightning instead gets a full makeover and supports the struggling businesses in town and helps repair the neon lights, restoring Radiator Springs to its heyday. The media arrives after tracking Lightning down, and he learns that Chick has made an impression on Dynaco and that he needs to get to California right away. We also learn that Doc made the call to the media as a way of sending Lightning away. We get to California where we start the tiebreaker race, but Lightning is struggling. That's when Radiator Springs arrives in droves with Doc as his chi- uh, crew chief back in his Hudson Hornet glory. He's got all of his decals on him. Lightning is about to win the race. But Chick wrecks the king because he refuses to finish behind him again. Lightning, looking to do the right thing, pushes uh, pushes out of the race and pushes the king to the finish line. So Chick wins the race, the king finishes second, and Lightning finishes third because he's doing this out of respect to the legend. He then turns down Dinoco, who was so impressed with his stunt... But he gets Mater a helicopter ride, which was the only thing that he and Mater both wanted out of Dynaco He then sets up his headquarters in Radiator Springs and sticks with Rusty's, his sponsor, while Chick becomes the villain that we all knew the entire time.
2: This might be the most impressive open that Pixar has ever done. I know we've talked about films like Toy Story and Monsters, Inc., and Inside Out and how amazing the world building is. And those are truly some of the best opens, but they are in the context of setting up jobs and roles and how the worlds that we are about to enter functions. This sort of flips that whole idea on its head because they are putting us in a very real atmosphere and they just knock it out of the park because it captures the scope of a NASCAR event like this. And every shot gives you a different point of view from the driver to the crew, to the sponsors, to the fans. And then they do it all with these like camera flash special effects. It's just absolutely incredible. It blows me away every single time. And this is where I'm like 20 wire, Really? 20? On this sequence alone, it should have been higher up.
1: Well, you have to watch movies to rank them. We've been doing it for about five years. Uh, they nailed the NASCAR thing. Um, I think the cinematography is amazing. The sound. Like the sound edit yes. like they could have won a sound editing Oscar just on this open. They I I love the sound. I love everything that they did. They captured something that to your point is very real. I, you know, a couple of years prior to this, NASCAR had done a film in IMAX, and it was called NASCAR and IMAX. You know, very original, but that's what it was called. And the open of this film very much reminds me of what that film was and it's it's at this moment that I immediately regret having not seen this in theaters because I didn't even sit and watch this properly on like a high def flat screen television for the first time when we watched this movie for the first time not not that I minded the invitation but we watched it on a tube television in your parents' basement, a 27-inch tube TV. <laughs> this was the first time. Now that we've got the 65-inch 4K mounted here in the studio, this was the first time that, like, I really got to experience and, and appreciate the detail of this film. And uh, yeah, it's IndieWire. You you just. You just got, I mean, we know you got the whole list wrong, but this is one of the most egregious. Uh, lapses in judgment on your
2: list. To your point with the sound design, I think that that's something that is so overlooked because it's just so well done And really I think that that's what captures the energy of a NASCAR race more than anything else is because you know you're hearing the tires, the skids, the um, the crowd cheering, The camera's going off. Um, There's just so much that goes into it that we take for granted because it's done right. If something was off, you would notice it because it's so jarring and it's just perfect. In particular, the crash sequence, too. Yeah. I love how they take all of the music away um, and they just let it play dry. There's no score until lightning makes the jump but they really just allow everything to happen and allow us to hear it and also feel it and i think that that's one of the biggest challenges with a movie like this too is because we're not a human sitting in the car we are in lightning's point of view so you had to do something like that to really put us into the action with him and they just knock it out of the park even just setting up the story through the commentator's so brilliant.
1: Yeah, it, it gets me very excited for the Daytona Night Race next month. Sure. I'm very—you you can watch on TV, or you'll watch something else, and I'm going to very much enjoy.
2: I've worked enough races where I, I don't need to watch. I'm good.
1: All right. Well, I'm going to enjoy myself. I'm going to have a blast. Um Let's talk about Lightning, though, There are slight imperfections with this film. Um because on the surface, spoiler, I want to give it a perfect score because it is so damn close.
2: But there's just something off, right?
1: He's too dislikable from the start. Yep. Bingo. The problem is like, let's let's talk about another racing film, which I showed you for the first time right before we watched Daytona, Days of Thunder with um Michael what, Rooker. Michael Rooker, Tom Cruise, Nicole Kidman, you know, it's an 80s race movie. so it's you know it's over the top. It's cheesy, but it it's,
2: is top gun on wheels.
1: but that's kind of what it's supposed to be right. but at the but ultimately, when you have Tom Cruise in this film, he's arrogant and he thinks he knows better and he's stubborn. But there's at no point in the film that you ever look at him and go, I don't really like you very much. There's something about him that is still endearing. With Lightning McQueen, the ego's okay. But everything past that, you just dislike. Other than his will for winning... He doesn't like his sponsors, he doesn't like his fans, it almost seems like he doesn't even really like to race, he just likes to be famous. That's the big difference between this film and Days of Thunder, and I think that if there's any failure here, this is the biggest failure of the movie.
2: I think you hit it spot on because that's definitely something that I bump on throughout the movie is how vocal he is and how much he complains about everything. And I get that you're setting us up for that great character arc that he's going to have, but there is a point where you lose your audience altogether just because he's so unlikable. And I will call it out when we get to that point. But with all that being said, I think it was so smart to start us at this stage of lightning's career where he's already had a little bit of, of success and he's had enough under his belt to give him that ego, which is going to be his biggest, his biggest obstacle. But as much as he becomes unlikable, I prefer this to a story of he's been chasing this dream. And then once he gets to the top, he realized not everything is all it was cracked up to be. And that it's lonely at the top. Like he is going to experience a little bit of that, but I like that we didn't see, like, the full climb. I think it was great to just put us in here, especially for the sake of kicking it off with a Piston Cup race.
1: Right, and I think that it's something in professional sports that people have come to expect. You, you know, that's why they call it the sophomore slump, right? You get overzealous rookies that overperform in their rookie year, and sometimes they think that they're as good as they are and they taper off in the second year. Some recover, some don't. So I think it's incredibly relatable. In terms of a sports film, it's a very relatable concept, but you just had to give us a reason to root for him. And I should not be 75% of the way through the movie until I start rooting for our main character, and that's sort of... That... They plant the seed way too early, and they're a little too heavy-handed with his overall demeanor being incredibly off-putting. Agreed. But what I love, and I've said this about Pixar, and they've kind of gotten away from this, because instead of just making—I mean, look, you you expect Pixar to have a social commentary sometimes. Not every movie needs to do that. Except now they do. They don't always have to. What I liked about early Pixar was that they would pepper in that adult humor. I've talked about it a lot. That Shrek-ish humor where the adults find it very funny and the kids don't really get it. It's going over their heads. Like the Headlight Twins.
2: Oh my gosh. When they
1: run up to Lightning McQueen and flash their headlights... We all as adults, we all know what that's what that's implying. And it's it's very funny. It's well placed. Kids don't get it. They just think that these are his admirers.
2: It's absolutely hilarious. I had forgotten about that until our most recent viewings. Um but it still slaps. It's still really funny. They actually did have another joke in there that Uh, that was similar but they did sort of back out of it um so after the race after um he after lightning has to do his uh rusty's appearance yeah he's got to go well they they call the race a three-way tie and now they set up that he's got to get to la and mac is going to drive him there and this is the first instance where he becomes very unlikable because Mac is tired. They've been driving for over a day already and lightning pushes him forward. He doesn't want to make him stop. He just wants to go straight through, be the first one there so he can schmooze Dinoco. These driving shots are absolutely stunning. We talked about how great it was in Bolt when they were doing the road trip across America and Disney did it. They did an amazing job with the computer animation, but I mean, this is Pixar here, right? So you're expecting more and Gosh, do they deliver on it? Um, but anyway, where we get that joke, um, I was thinking about it. And instead of this business with Mac getting tired and then Lightning falling asleep on him and then Lightning sort of gets dumped off on the side because Mac is... Uh, he's he's drowsy on the road. Right. Um, and point being, they should have pulled over. I was like, why didn't they go... To Mac does point out a rest stop where he wants to pull over for the night. And I was like, why didn't they have them get separated there? Um, You know, I just thought it would have served the story a little bit better if, you know, Lightning didn't want to wait for him while he was napping and he kind of ventures off and then Mac thinks he has him and then he just keeps going. And now Lightning is stranded fish out of water because his name can't carry him through this or whatever. Right. Um, That is actually a deleted scene. They decided not to go with it. And I'm wondering if, to your point, it was because the rest stop was called um, Tops Down and it was the signage. If you go into the deleted scenes, it has the sketch. It says convertible waitresses. So they really did give you a very, very adult joke. And I, I'm wondering if that's why they pulled back and they leaned into this narrative of Mac falling asleep on the road instead because they thought maybe it was going too far. I think joke-wise and story-wise, it just would have been so much better if they left it like that. But I feel validated because I had the same idea.
1: And all of that dialogue in that deleted scene is the dialogue that gets used in his appearance with the sponsors, with Rusties. So Correct. clearly, the whole he does the Rusties thing and he doesn't want to be around rusty cars because I guess he finds them gross and beneath him. Yeah. Um... That whole thing would seemingly be eliminated because all of that dialogue was used in this other scene. Um, yeah, I think they could have gotten away with it. I, I, they, it is over the head of a kid. I mean, you're basically they're, they're going to be the girls are going to be topless. Is basically what you're, you know what you're saying. But a kid doesn't understand that, and I don't think that a parent would be offended by it. It's just meant to be silly. But at the same time, it's like. It's, it's it's not it's not a it's not a gentleman's club. It's a drive-through, so it is it is a little out of place. But I I agree with you that having Mac fall asleep at the wheel, having him lulled to sleep, you know, the lullaby by the the drag racing cars, having lightning just fall out the back, like. It was okay. I always felt that it was forced, so I like the concept here. So if you didn't want to go with the idea of the topless female cars, you could have at least gone with this idea that they're going to get stranded at the rest stop, and I think that it would have just been a little bit more seamless than... um, how convenient he falls asleep and falls out the back of the hauler.
2: Story-wise, it feels a little weak and forced to your point. Where they make up for it, though, is in the gorgeous animation of the night shots driving. They get the taillights. Um, even when the cars pull up along the side of Mac, you get the reflection of the cars in on the side of Mac's truck. Like It is just so amazing the attention to detail the reflection of headlights on the road again all things we take for granted because it's how we see it in our everyday had they missed it you'd pay more attention right because it would look off it's just perfect it's so realistic um you also get this great beat between mac and his agent harv harv um he's just the quintessential hollywood agent that's you know in it for the money and all these little you know wink and nod jokes of you know I'm saying I'm your friend but I really love you because you make me money um and I had forgotten I can't believe I forgot about this because I was like this is just so familiar and it's so quintessential Hollywood slime that of course it's voiced by Jeremy Piven. And I want to bring that up now because of course we're going to talk about the cast, but this is such a little bit part. I don't want to skip him later. Jeremy Piven is the quintessential Hollywood agent because of Entourage. He is always going to be Ari Gold. He is one of the best characters ever written for television. He's in my top five um, because he's just so brilliant. It's a brilliant character, brilliant performance. And I love that because of the popularity of Entourage, they threw him in here
1: the things he would say in that show. Oh my God. Like there are times, I'm not going to lie. There are times that I'll do two things and I'll go to like YouTube and it won't surprise anybody who's listened to this show long enough. And I will either go like, I'll either in the search bar do best insults or best jokes. And there's three characters that I go to Al Bundy, Tim Taylor, Ari gold, because the three (laughs) of them are (laughs) hysterical. Like if I just need a laugh for like 15 minutes, there are montages all over the place and you just the things that they would say and him specifically are unbelievable.
2: I wish that they had allowed him to yell at his assistant because that was such a big thing with Ari that he'd always yell for Lloyd. And because they got Larry the cable guy a getter done, I wish they would have given him like a more classic line but still so happy with this cameo.
1: Yeah. Um, and now we get him chased into Radiator Springs. And the sheriff is backfiring because he's an old car and he doesn't drive very fast anymore. And lightning thinks he's being shot at Pixar would never put that no. joke in no. a film and ever again, but it doesn't mean it's not funny. It, it really doesn't. Um, everything that gets you set up in radiator Springs. The, I think the humor in general from that moment on is spectacular. Um, When you have um, Fillmore is sitting there talking about on the third blink that lights longer and he just goes the '60s weren't good to you were they (laughs) like this whole thing the 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 humor still lands
2: and Radiator Springs is just absolutely stunning. I mean, you get a better look at it during the day, but even at night, um, it's just absolutely incredible. And they not only captured the essence of a location they captured an era it's it's amazing
1: a bygone era yeah um and they do later on i don't want to jump too far ahead but later on they kind of talk about how it's a bygone era for a reason and not o- not always for the right reasons but we'll get to that later on um i love traffic court i love that lightning has to go to traffic court the next day and in comes Sally, a Portia, who is not, obviously, one of these things is not like the other, right? She certainly is not, by any stretch of the imagination. It's such a great intro for her, not only because it establishes her affinity for the town, but the, the case of a uh, confused identity, so to speak. And again, does not do anything to make Lightning McQueen at all likable, where he's just like, he's immediately he sees her, he's got a thing for her, and then he starts talking down to her because he thinks she is his attorney that his sponsors, who by the way he dislikes, sent for him to get him out of trouble.
2: Yes, and... You buy that watching this because leading into this, you see the news montage. So we know that everybody in lightning's world does know that he's missing and you get these really great cameos. uh, Like they got Jay Leno to voice Jay limo doing um, a night show saying that lightning's gone missing. Uh, You get the likeness of Arnold Schwarzenegger posing as the governor of California saying that he's missing. Um, You know, which does completely track because he's lightning is trying to make his way out to L.A. So it's a really great misdirect because we would believe that Sally has been sent because everybody's out looking for him now.
1: Right. And it's so brilliant that she gets the whole town to rally around her to have him repave the road. And it's it kind of leads you to wonder, like, I mean, I know Doc wants him gone. This is the first thing. You're like, Doc wants him gone because he's a race car, but you just think it's because he doesn't want a flashy race car that's going to cause trouble in town. You just assume that he's going to think, oh, it's a drag racer. It's Fast and the Furious, right? Like, right. I don't want that around. Um, though it would seem odd that uh, Doc would have just allowed the, the town to be destroyed with no repercussion. It pays off later on, but in the moment, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Exactly.
2: I like this scene for Sally's character that she's rallying everyone, but I feel like Doc should have been the one to give out the punishment. Like, I realize that they're trying to set up his aversion to racing, but you're absolutely right. It feels weird that he's not making Lightning pay for this.
1: It's easy to have him want to really punish Lightning, because he has such an adverse relationship with the world of stock car racing. Though at the same time, um, I think it serves his character better that he just wants him to go away. Because it pays off big time later on.
2: Where it also sort of doesn't make sense is not is that the sheriff is not administering the punishment either because I get that this is a small town and people are doing like multiple roles but the doc is a doctor or a mechanic he's fixing the cars he's also the judge in this town so now it kind of seems like he's judge jury and executioner right like why does he have that much control here
1: yeah well obviously he's got his footprint in the town going back to 1954 so I, I can buy it, but uh, but I see your point. Uh, you also get another great line here from Mater where he says, you, you owe me $32,000 in legal fees. <laughs> uh, like, this film, it's just got peppered in, very good comedy, very funny humor throughout. And I'm not going to say it too much more because then it's just going to get repetitive. But I have to wonder if that was scripted or if that was Larry the Cable Guy going off the cuff.
2: I would think they have a bunch of lines that were improv'd by him. Um, I don't know if it was that one in particular, but I'm sure they got some really good stuff that made it in if they just, you know, sort of let him go. Um, But it's smart though, to have that humor to balance it out because in these next couple of beats where we see lightning start to fix the road, this is what I was talking about where we lose him completely as he becomes Absolutely unlikable. It's just too much complaining. I wish that they had paired that back a little bit. We know he doesn't want to be there. We know he's in, he's desperate to get to LA and beat his competitors out there so that he can, you know, start to woo the sponsors and whatever he wants to do. But They just take it one step too far. Because at one point, I believe he calls everyone idiots when something happens. And that's where I was like, no, you have crossed the line. Aside from the fact that this is a family movie and you shouldn't be name calling. What reason do I have to root for you at this point if you're being so nasty? I understand they're building that tension of like, I got to get out of here and everything is standing in my way. But just we see it. We didn't need to hear that.
1: I mean, look, here's my thing. I I see what you mean. At one point, he calls the place redneck hell. Um, all of this serves to make him dislikable. I don't particularly care that it's in a family film because in a Marvel movie, you have the main characters that are supposed to be the heroes that, you know, six-year-olds have their action figures and you have Captain America talking about Thanos in Endgame and goes, let's go get that son of a bitch. He's not wrong because... You want to go after Thanos for all the horrific things that he's done to the galaxy, but in terms of harsh language and put-downs and insults, um, uh, I, I give it more of a pass that it's a family film, because, believe me, parents are taking their kids to see films that have far worse language. It, to me, it's more like, you didn't need to do anything else, to make him dislikable. And the thing is, the film is so well-written in general that it feels like you didn't know how to give him a character arc, so you forced one out of nothing. That's the thing when you have dialogue like this. And that, to me, is the more egregious action than having somebody call somebody else an idiot in a Pixar film
2: yeah i mean i'm not trying to sound like the language police here i'm not offended by the language i just feel like it wasn't necessary so it was uncalled for um you know and really until sally offers him the place to stay and he starts sort of warming up to her he just remains in this state so it's like why is she extending the olive branch she's It it seems a little unmotivated because he's given her no reason to do that.
1: Other than other than completing half of his community service, which he has to do anyway.
2: Right. Like had he done the whole road by this point or if, if he was almost done, then it would make more sense. But this is after the point where he's rushed through it. He did a really poor job and then they made him do it over. So it's, it's like, why? He's still racing to get out of there, and, you know, he's completely phoning it in. He hasn't done one thing to make her go, huh, maybe he's not such a bad guy. He starts making that turn after she's nice to him. He, I, I think he should have earned that a little bit more from I, her.
1: I think the implication is that because he was being nice to Mater, which was kind of fake nice, but... We don't necessarily know that off the rip. I think because he was being nice to Mater, she saw that there was somehow in there a soft spot. I just think that they didn't do a good enough job explaining to us that that's why she's offering this to him. Because you're right, it kind of comes out of nowhere.
2: But that comes after. So she offers him a place to stay that morning when he's got half of the road done. Then the sheriff asked Mater to keep an eye on him that night. They go tractor tipping. Hilarious, by the way. Yes. Um, And then the town starts to turn around because now he's done a good job with half the road. So because the road looks nice, everyone else starts giving their business a little zhuzh. And Luigi starts painting, you know, his garage door. Then he has the bonding with Mater, and then he stays at the Cozy Cone that night. So there's an entire day since she's made that offer where he's started to build relationships. The offer just seemingly comes out of nowhere.
1: Well, I guess then if it's not because of his relationships, it's because she's just happy that Radiator Springs is starting to take themselves seriously again. Because ultimately, all she wants is to get it back to its heyday. So maybe this is her way of keeping him motivated. But that's the thing. He's motivated enough, right? Like he's just trying to get out and he's already tried to rush it and it failed and they made him start over again. So
2: So now he is doing the right. Maybe that's it because he did actually just accept it.
1: Yeah. Um, I love the little tease with her that she's got that back tattoo. (laughs) Like that's hysterical. Um, But something that is a miss to me. And this is where I wish maybe we would have seen a little bit more in the deleted scenes. Like, I wish they would have kept maybe some of those deleted scenes in the film. Is we get this whole thing from Lightning McQueen that throughout his entire life, all he dreamed of was winning a Piston Cup. But he doesn't seem like he cares enough. He seems like he cares about winning a Piston Cup, but when the king goes to speak to him after the three-way tiebreaker, mm-hmm. he doesn't pay attention to a damn thing he says because he's dr- daydreaming about Dinoco. He's daydreaming about taking the king's sponsor. Right. Um. He doesn't care about his own sponsors. He doesn't care. Again, I'm rehashing everything we talked about before. But it seems like you dreamed this your whole life, but at the same time, it seems like it kind of came out of nowhere. Again, something that Days of Thunder does very well. Um, Tom Cruise's character in that film was not an NASCAR driver. He was running indies. Right. And he was very successful. His ego got him kicked off his team because he won so much that he was egotistical and he didn't want to listen to anybody. So he tried his hand at NASCAR because he knew that that's where there was money, That was something he hadn't conquered yet, right? So, like, in that case, it makes sense. You've dominated at every other level, and now you're taking on something that you're like, well, if I did it there, I can do it here. If this was your dream the entire time, you'd think that you would have taken the time to listen to the king. Right. Because you would respect who he is and what he's meant for your sport. So I feel like this storyline kind of just comes out of nowhere. And I, I just don't believe it. That's the problem. I don't find his, his conduct, his behavior and his general demeanor and disposition towards everything related to racing other than winning leads me to believe that he never really cared about any of this.
2: Right. And this is where I feel like a little bit of backstory would have gone a long way. They do a great job with the character arc, But to your point, it would have been nice to learn where this love of racing came from, or even if it's a love of racing, or if it's just, you know, did you have nothing better to do? Because they mentioned so many times, well, I'm a race car. I don't have rearview mirrors. I don't have headlights. I don't need them. So, you know, I mean, I realize for the context of this world, we, we don't really need, to go that deep as far as like, you know, who were your parents and, and right. you know, how were you made? But just as far as the context of getting into racing, we needed a little bit of that because they do sort of hint at it earlier when he has the conversation with Harv. And Harv is like, you know, let me know who you want to invite to the Piston Cup, um, you know, and and Uh, Lightning is silent and Harv covers it up with oh I know you have so many friends you can't even narrow it down to ten of them Lightning has no friends why? Is it because you've always been so focused on racing and you have time for nothing else and that is part of the arc because he learns to care about these people eventually and what it means to ask for help and lean on other people and that's all great but we don't know how he got here to begin with Yeah. As far as being a loner.
1: Correct. Instead, what you get is Mater telling Lightning that he made a good choice in choosing his best friend.
2: I love this little scene.
1: It's great. It's great for Mater. See, this is the thing. Like, I almost feel like this film almost serves Mater better than it serves Lightning.
2: Yeah, and we have seen archetypes of this type of character before where you know it's just a simple life and they find joy in the simple things. But I love moments like this where, you know, it's it's broken down to how deeply they feel. And I just love that line of I knew I made a good choice and a best friend. The whole thing is great. I mean the cow tipping and or the tractor tipping rather, it's very funny. I love the chase from Frank. Um But yeah, Mater is where it's at. And then, you know, you get this whole great sequence where he shows lightning that he can drive backwards because he's got the rearview mirrors. Um, And it's just, like, so obvious that a scene like this would inspire a ride like Mater's Junkyard Jamboree.
1: Yeah. And the thing is, like, you think, as the viewer, okay, lightning's letting his guard down. And then, not a minute later... Does he have this conversation with Sally where she goes, did you mean what you said to Mater? And he was like, yeah, sure. So it's like, I I just don't understand why at this point, even at this point in the movie, why Sally doesn't see through it, why they made a conscious choice to not start to turn lightning in the other direction. Like, You don't need to send the message home any further. So why you've kept him in this stagnant state, and when in a moment where we should start to fall in love with our lead, we still cannot... It's not that we don't, it's that we can't. I don't understand why, for a film that is so well done, for a film that is so well written, for a film that is so well rounded, for a film that is so well directed that this is still not coming to a resolution this far into the runtime.
2: I'm so glad you brought this up because this is the scene that I bump on the most. I mean, animation-wise again, it's stunning. He, you know, the cozy cone we see it all lit up at night and Sally's all proud that it's newly refurbished. Um we knew that he was making an empty promise to Mater about the helicopter ride right. because He's he wants to, you know, bust out of there and he's never going to see these people again. So. It I get annoyed because Sally is annoyed. It's like, you know, this about him, you're starting to have a little crush on him anyway. And now you're trying to force lightning to be who you want him to be when you know that he's nothing more yet yeah, yeah, because he hasn't started to make that turn we have not seen the glimmer of hope for him to be a good person yet so why do you it, it's just confusing it's it's not the best writing here the glimmer comes from after he pulls into the room and he's like hey thanks this is nice it's newly refurbished right and he remembers that yeah but i i feel like it's just too little too late at that point
1: i completely agree I completely agree with you.
2: And then the next morning, she wants to go for a ride with him. Yeah. Because she sees greatness in him. I don't, I, I, this I don't get. It's completely unmotivated, but it's stunning. And I think that that's why they put it in here is because it's just really beautiful animation. And in a movie about cars, you're not going to not have a montage where they're driving, you know, on this really scenic route. And you also have to get them in a place where, Uh, Lightning is going to learn the backstory of the town.
1: Well, this is the thing. This, This whole scene exists, and it is a great scene, and it's a great scene for Sally. The whole scene, the whole point of it is not even that we learn her backstory, it's that we learn, what we all know, is that the grass isn't always greener on the other side. She left the world that he's trying so desperately to get into because it's not a world that is all that appealing at the end of the day. Right on the surface it's sexy but when you really live through it it can be a very lonely place that's the point so it's a good scene for that and i think it's necessary for that and i think it's necessary for sally but to your point sally should have such a dislike for this car that she should not even want to entertain the minute that she, that he says sure should be the minute that she goes, you know what, Uh, you're you're not welcome here at the Cozy Cone. Because she's too smart to not see that he's a BS artist.
2: Right. Well, I mean, I get your point. But the other thing is, we're also going to get that point of view from Doc in a couple of minutes of screen time. Because he's going to show us how fleeting fame is. So... Uh, you have both points of view. One is saying it's not all it's cracked up to be. The other is saying don't put all your eggs in that basket. Have a backup plan. But I feel like this is more to explain the town. And as beautiful as it is, I feel like we could have gotten a lot more backstory out of here. Like, yes, you learn from Sally that she went off to be a lawyer, but why does she take him up to this Wheelwell motel? Like, I think it would have been so more effective to say, like, This was my hometown. This is where I grew up. This was my parents' place. One day, I want to reopen it and have her have more of a deeper connection to that location. Or, um, you know, this is where you could have had Lightning's backstory come out a little bit more. And now Sally has a deeper understanding of who he is and why he's so connected to racing. So as nice as it is to see the town in its heyday and this gorgeous animation... I feel like we could have gotten a lot more out of this scene instead of having the music play, like hear a conversation on the drive up there.
1: Um, I kind of think that if she would have had a history in and around Radiator Springs, I think it would have um, watered down the message that this place that seemingly nobody wants to be in is the place that she chose to go to. Now, if they would have given us more of Lightning's backstory, maybe he came from a place just like Radiator Springs, and he dreamed of the big city and the fame and the fortune. Maybe he was a failed race car. Maybe he was... He wasn't somebody that was popular and he got made fun of for wanting to be a race car. Maybe he was too small to be a race car. You know, like there's there's so many ways that you could have played it so that he could have had such a negative view towards this town. Because it struck a chord with him that he never was able to shake. Because it's a part of his character, as opposed to just being in redneck hell with a bunch of morons, as he calls them, or idiots, whatever it was. Um, th- th- that, I, that I agree with you. I, I think that there's an opportunity to build on that idea. Um, but I think if you would have given Sally... Um, I think if you would have given her a history there, it, it wouldn't have really served the idea that someone would have left L.A. to go there. You get what I'm saying? Like
2: You're right. I think that is fair to say that it would have watered her arc down a little bit. However, you are also sort of introducing this theme of there's no place like home. And that's why all of these other cars who have businesses here, even though they are struggling, they're all in this together. And they're leaning on each other. And they're still hoping that their situation will improve. So... If Sally didn't have roots there, there is still sort of a disconnect of why she would want to stay when the town is struggling so much. That's never really established why any of them are staying. I mean, yes, because they have each other, but and maybe that's where I'm looking at this too realistically. It's like, when do you. When do you call it? Because a lot of those businesses did.
1: Well, that's the thing. I don't think you're looking into it too much because some of them have said, if we can't turn this around, we're going to have to move. So you've already established that that there is realism here in that you may not be able to keep the town afloat. The town's already disappeared, literally disappeared off the map. Right. Um, no, so I, I think that you're right. You know, you, you hardly get any business coming through the town. So how are you able to even sustain this much and, and stick around for this long? I mean, obviously, if you get rid of all of them, you have no story. But but I, I don't think you're looking into it too much because they've already established that other businesses have left and they could be next. So, But you'll also notice that it's all essential businesses that have to stay. Correct. It's a mechanic shop. It's a tire shop. It's a restaurant. It's a motel. These are all things that have to exist, technically speaking. I think what they do really well here, though, is that they talk about that bygone era and they talk about because they put the interstate in to save 10 minutes of driving, you decimated a once prosperous area. And I think that that is something that rings true today, Um, not just only the small businesses that don't get the foot traffic because of major highways, although major highways have always... Listen, Route 66 is doing just fine, okay? But I think it talks more to major corporations coming in and eliminating mom-and-pop businesses. Oh, yeah. And the cost of operating mom-and-pop businesses has become oppressive. You They don't exist anymore because you just can't afford it. Um, I think that, as a means of... A social commentary. See, so this is where Pixar does good social commentary. Yeah. It's not heavy-handed. It exists. It makes sense. It's relatable, but you don't have somebody with a megaphone over your shoulder screaming in your ear that has turned so many people off with Pixar in the last 5 or 7 years. So like this is where Pixar storytelling is at its best. And I and I think that movies like Turning Red, Inside Out, like they do such a good job of talking about the mental psyche. But this, to me, is some of the best storytelling, and I wish that Pixar would go back to doing films like this, where you tell your story, you have your commentary, you get it across, but it's not in a way that makes you feel like you're being lectured.
2: It's still more of a metaphor. Yes. Um. No, and they do it so well here because you don't, just have it from Sally where she's explaining it a lot more seriously. We see it done humorously when that other couple comes through the town and yes. we see what happened. And it's like places, everybody. And then yes, with
1: the Lincoln continental breakfast. Yes.
2: And they're so overbearing because these two cars happen to go through their town and then they end up not, you know, patronizing anything because they're scared off.
1: They're trying too hard.
2: Yes, exactly. They're overcompensating.
1: So let's talk now about the Hudson Hornet. We get back into town, and Lightning kicks a can because he's frustrated, and it rolls into a garage, and he follows it in, and we find three piston cups, and he realizes that Doc is the Hudson Hornet, right? I'll be honest with you. It's so clear as day that Doc would have been a former race car, I didn't see it coming. There are so many good distractions in this film that it does throw you off course. You just think that Doc is a disciplinarian that likes his quiet town. No ruckus, no craziness. Um, Get off my lawn. This is so brilliantly done.
2: Yeah. The reveal is so good that after the first time you've seen this film, you kick yourself for going, why didn't I see this? From the moment Doc challenges Lightning to the race and tells him how to do the turn.
1: Because you just think that he's just trying to teach him a lesson about don't be overzealous.
2: Exactly. And, like, humble yourself and, and maybe take somebody else's advice when you don't know. And by the time you get to this reveal, it's like, oh, of course. But this character is just such a great parallel to Lightning as far as, you know, what we talked about before and how... Sally is showing him how your dreams aren't always what they're cracked up to be. And here it is kind of the same message through Doc, but he had something happen to him where he physically can't pursue his dream anymore or he can't stay on the top. Um, So I love that they are also channeling this message through of, you know, you work so hard for something, but like you should always have a backup plan.
1: It's really well done um, that Doc reached the pinnacle of his of his profession, the exact thing that lightning wants and it's just remember you you want these sponsors so bad but the minute somebody else comes along you're replaceable and it, I mean it's totally right. I mean it's it's so right. Um, I think that it's a good metaphor for life. I mean it's cynical, but it's you know and it's meant to be um, because you have two extremes. Lightning has an extreme, Doc has an extreme. Sally is sort of the glue in the middle, right? She she's not an she's not an extremist, you know, in the, in that way. Um really, I mean she's the most well-rounded character in the movie if you think about it. Um but I I the reveal is great. I think that the conflict with Doc, the internal conflict is great as it plays out later, especially when he calls the media just wants Lightning out of the town. I think that he sends it home i think that it does a great job fleshing out why he hates the race industry so much and you are gifted and maybe this may have been ad lib i don't know you are gifted with what might be the funniest line in any pixar film when lightning comes out and tells everybody that there are three <laughs> piston cups and mater goes he did what in his cup it's i it's the funniest line that has ever been penned to a Pixar script, I'll die on the hill. And
2: the delivery is absolutely spectacular. Um, no, I agree with you. And I I feel like this was also an important scene because this is where Pixar was just such a smart acquisition for Disney because it is sort of the antithesis of Disney In that regard, because Disney has always preached, you know, dream big and, you know, obviously that that's something that we can trace back to Walt. But even in films like Pinocchio, you have one you wish upon a star and Cinderella and a dream is a wish your heart makes. And, you know, the Disney renaissance did start to break down those ideas a little bit and especially the later Disney films, they've gotten into more of, you know, you have to take responsibility and take everything into your own hands. But Pixar was doing that before Disney got there and they're giving you this dose of reality about what comes with having big dreams through Doc's character. Um, And I love that we get to see, aside from the piston cup joke, I love that we physically see these piston cups strewn all over the place, collecting dust, ones holding pens um it's just such a great visual and it's what lightning needed to be slapped with in that moment.
1: I'm glad that you bring this up. Let me ask you a question before we move on here. Um I've noticed and I'm it's kind of just coming to me now that I talk about the way Disney or the way that Pixar used to tell their stories, the way that they used to have their metaphors, the way that they used to do this, that, and the next, and how I miss that old school storytelling out of Pixar. Um, I'm only realizing now that they got away from all of that the minute that Disney bought them. And I'm wondering, I'm wondering if that's where you've lost a lot of this creative, because you'll notice now, this is where anything that's successful from Pixar, we have to franchise it everything's got to have a sequel. Now Toy Story had a sequel before Disney bought it and I think Cars had their first sequel before Disney bought it. But like you'll notice that we're not getting a ton of original stories out of Pixar. You get some, you get a, you know, you get a a, a Turning Red, you have an Inside Out, which oh guess what? They're making a sequel out of it. I I'm I'm wondering if the creative once Disney got them was We want to tell these stories. We can't tell these stories under the guise of Disney animation. But Pixar's already doing it, so we're just going to do it with Pixar. But what I think Disney creative doesn't always understand is that, as I have pointed out, for the final time, Pixar did it a certain way that was very approachable and you don't feel like you're being lectured or punished or made to feel a certain way, Pixar does a really good job of just having the light bulb come on for you and go, huh, you, you know what? You're right. See, when when you don't see it coming and you don't feel like you're being lectured, you tend to open yourself up a little bit more because you're not as defensive. I'm wondering if... if <sighs> There has to be a reason why the creative and the storytelling, everything at Pixar changed after Disney bought them. Oh, wow. I'm, I'm just realizing this now.
2: Wow. I don't think that you're wrong. Um, no, that's a really good point because it was one thing when it was Disney Presents in association with Pixar. And... I'd have to go back and watch the documentary again. I mean, we all know that Pixar started doing Listerine commercials, obviously. Yeah. But I think part of that acquisition came from Disney wanting to partner up and compete with Dreamworks and um you know, post all of the Spielberg animation that was happening during the 90s. So, I think this was their way of I think first and foremost, they wanted this partnership because Pixar had the technology that they just didn't yet. Um, And it was very successful in that regard. But to your point, Pixar movies felt very different back then. Um, So I I certainly think that there's some validity to that.
1: Okay, so um, I just want to point out here... Disney purchased Pixar in 2006. So they purchased Pixar the year that this movie came out. However...
2: So the movie's done at this movie's point movie's done
1: at this point. Safe to say that if they bought them in 2006, you probably had three or four years worth of movies that you were already working on before Disney really got their hands on yeah. it, right? So I want to look up... I'm trying to pull up the list here. Uh... Year by year, which amazingly is is a harder.
2: You want me to pull up IndieWire? I think Here that had the dates. No,
1: no, thank you. Okay, <laughs> list of Pixar films. Here we go with release dates. I want to count out the movies before 2006. Okay, Toy Story. Obviously, original concept. Bug's Life, Bugs original Life. concept. Toy Story Two. Okay, sequel. Monsters Inc., Finding Nemo, The Incredibles, Cars. Ratatouille, 2007, WALL-E, 2008, up 2009. So I've given you your three-year cushion.
2: Figure all of those were in development, if not in production.
1: Prior to the acquisition. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Let's look at what comes after 2009. I've never looked at this list, by the way. So this is either going to blow up in my face or prove my point. Toy Story 3. Oh, my God. Cars 2. Oh, my gosh. Brave. Monsters University. Inside Out, The Good Dinosaur, Finding Dory, so another sequel, Cars 3, Coco, The Incredibles 2, so a sequel, Toy Story 4, do you see do you see where I'm going
2: with this? So it almost sounds like one for you, one for me. You give us a sequel and then you produce an original concept because that's pretty much split down the middle.
1: Correct. And even let's go back to 2010. Toy Story 3. You're going to do a sequel. Okay, fine. Great film. Cars 2, you did a sequel and it stunk. Spoiler. We're going to talk about it next week. Brave? Brave was fine. Original concept. Monsters U sequel. Monsters U was okay. Inside Out, original concept, brilliant. The Good Dinosaur, not a concept or not a sequel, original concept, absolute bomb. Finding Dory sequel. Okay, very good. Cars 3 sequel. Fairly good from what I remember. Coco. Original concept incredible. Incredibles 2 sequel. See, so you see what I'm saying? Like there's 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 not only been a one for you, one for me, but by and large some of these original concepts are either okay or not that great. With Coco and Inside Out being the outliers, being the outstanding films. Mm-hmm. Then you get Toy Story 4 was was horrific. Onward was just okay. Soul was fine. Luca wasn't that great. Turning Red, very good. Lightyear was better than it should have been given credit for. And the same thing for Elemental. So it it seems like in the last... I can't even say the last two or three years because Lightyear falls in, in the Toy Story franchise. Right. So... You've had a little bit more in original concepts in the last couple of years between Onward and um, and Elemental. Elemental. Um, but the, yeah, you'll notice that post-acquisition, very little original content. Very original, original content that was acclaimed, unlike what Pixar was doing before. Mostly okay to good original content alternating with sequels.
2: I wish we had realized this before we looked at that indie wireless. I mean, I don't think it would change it my stance on my anything ranks. because, you know, what we like is what we like. Unbiased, what <laughs> yeah. we like is what we like. So, yeah, I... It's still wrong having cars at uh, at number 20. So you want to get back to the cars conversation? Yeah, we're going to
1: have to. <laughs> otherwise, we're going down a rabbit hole. Um, because
2: but- this is where lightning starts to make the turn. I think I'm wondering if that would have made the difference is front loading this stock scene a little bit where lightning does start to warm up. And maybe this is why he he accepts fixing the road. And if it had come before some of the Sally stuff, if it would have been more effective.
1: I don't know because then it becomes disingenuous because lightning says, you got to teach me. And he goes, I already tried. So, Like, that's a very mm-hmm. good light. Like, you needed that. Um, I I think you needed to hold it towards the end because if you did it early, now it's just going to seem like Lightning's doing it to impress his idol because ultimately this is, again, the thing is you don't trust your lead. So you think that he wants to buddy up with Doc to learn how to race to win the Piston Cup so that he can get away from Radiator Springs and get get what he wants. You are not rooting for him to get what he wants because you just don't like him enough.
2: Until now. Now is where we start to make the turn because the road is finished, and everybody thinks that he leaves, but he doesn't. He stays another day, puts everything off as far as Dynaco off another yeah. day to support all of these businesses. And in turn, they've had life breathed into them now. So now they want to go the extra mile. They all fix their neon. And again, Indie Wire, number 20, this scene with the neon glow is absolutely stunning this is why you have an entire Cars Land. Because somebody recognized how absolutely beautiful it is and said, gee, wouldn't it be cool to stand in the middle of this? And they recreated it perfectly.
1: Yeah, I was about to say, by the way, is probably the most impressive land in any of the Disney parks that we've been to, which is all of the domestics. Admittedly, we haven't gone to any of them overseas yet. And galaxy's edge is awesome it really is very impressive this is better i think i think radiator springs i think cars land is better
2: and and the rides too they just so emulate the movie it's it's just perfect that to me that is what fully immersive should be i I feel like i am stepping into the movie and i am writing the story Mm,
1: Yes, but let's not take away from what the Imagineers did at Galaxy's Edge. Oga's is great. I think that Rise of the Resistance is the best thing that Imagineering has ever done. And uh, I I do think that uh, Smuggler's Run is a hell of a lot of fun.
2: I'm not comparing to Star Wars because you're right. I don't want to take anything away from Galaxy's Edge. But what we should compare it to is the other Pixar world that they gave us. Oh, God awful. Toy Story Land, you're shrunk in Andy's backyard. W- at what point in the movie are we shrunk in Andy's backyard? We're in Sid's backyard blowing up toys, not Andy's.
1: It was lazy and it was cheap.
2: That, but that's what I'm saying. If you're going to pit these two up against each other, like, or for the sake of comparison, pit Pixar against Pixar... Cars knocks it out of the park.
1: I have said before that to me, Toy Story Land, you, you may as well have just put a roller coaster and an alien swirling saucer at the All-Star Movie Resort because that's what it looks like to me.
2: Yeah, and especially when you compare it to, not not just the way that they recreated it, where they put it in that park, I know everybody loves how it looks at dusk because it's so stunning, but that was all intentional. You, you have the golden hour in this film, the way it hits the mountains, and they were able to recreate that just by virtue of where they positioned everything for the sunset. It's incredible. It's one of the best things that they have ever done.
1: I mean, you have an entire scene in the film based in a restaurant, which you have now seen pop up in every other Pixar film with the Pizza Planet delivery trucks. You don't have a Pizza Planet in Toy Story Land. Right. I'm, I'm just saying.
2: Well, we did at one point.
1: And now it's Pizza Rizzo. Yeah.
2: Whatever. We could go off on a whole nother tangent. Um. Back to Cars. You have this incredible scene. And to your point, holding off the reveal on Doc, this is where it works well as far as um, waiting until Lightning is almost done fixing the road to learn that he is a race car. Everything is turning around. Lightning is learning to let people into his life. He's supporting them. Um, Like I said, the town has new life breathed into it, and you get this twist of Doc being the one to call in Lightning's team to find him. Oh, it's so good. I was never expecting that like the reveal that doc was a race car is great but that's a sucker punch
1: it's so well done it's so well accomplished you don't see it coming um
2: especially because the reporter asked him hey are you doc hudson you think he's being recognized not the case
1: yeah it's the it's so well done and it's that doc still wants him gone in spite of all of the good that he's done for the town, in spite of all the good he's done for the people of the town, which also leads you to understand the exact uh, power struggle that exists within Radiator Springs because ultimately Doc has to be in complete control. The the whole thing is just so, so well done. Uh, So we get to California. The LA International Speedway, I love the tribute to the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum. It it's it looks just like it and especially now that NASCAR does their All-Star race there and that you actually do get racing at the LA Coliseum, like it's just it warms my heart to see this.
2: No, and the scene is incredible. I mean, they they knocked that first race out of the park, but they managed to do it even a little bit differently here and still capture that feeling all over again. They do the flyover with, with the, the pla- light year blimp. Incredible. Well, not just that, with the um with the planes.
1: Yes. Yes, where they you get the yeah, the the fly you're right, the military flyover. Yes. Like they just everything about somebody who made who wrote this film had to be a tremendous racing fan because there's also an element here that I didn't talk about before. Where if you love stock car racing, if you love NASCAR, if you grew up with it. You understand that there's a lineage from dirt tracks to asphalt. That is such an understated element of this film that Doc sits there and says, you asphalt drivers have no idea. And, And Lightning has to learn. That's why the Bristol race for NASCAR is such a big deal because it's grassroots, it's old school, it's drivers having to learn to drive again on what is the bedrock of stock car racing. The fact that that exists low-key, by the way, in this film, is unbelievable.
2: Well, that's why Doc is just such a great character because it's not just about what he represents as far as having it all and then that being taken away, but there is that, old-school, new-school mentality, too. It's it's great.
1: I love Chick Hicks. His sponsor is Hostile Takeover Bank, by the way. <laughs> um, like, very tongue-in-cheek. Again, very well done. And obviously we see that Lightning is struggling throughout this race because he doesn't have a pit crew. Right. His pit crew gave up on him because he doesn't need a pit crew. And as on the nose as it is, You don't mind at all when Radiator Springs comes out to be the pit crew and that the Hudson Hornet, because he's not, I mean, it's Doc, but now he's the Hudson Hornet, comes back and is willing to be the crew chief.
2: I love it. And I love how they bring him in is that we hear him over the microphone. We learn the same time that lightning does. We don't know that they're there. It's another brilliant reveal. And it does, you know, is it cheesy? Yeah, but it tugs on your heartstrings nonetheless. And they also allow Mater a getter done. Yes. I love it.
1: Really well done. And the, the full arc that Lightning has by the end of this race is his respect for the king is what he should have had the whole damn time. Now, I understand it takes having to be in Radiator Springs to see that grass isn't always greener and that you have to respect people for who they are. Um, and obviously he had that with Doc. But again, he has such an affinity for racing that it was his lifelong dream that he never respected the king but always respected Doc. Um, it, it's disconnected, but it's a great moment where he gives up the win. You needed him to do it to push the king over the finish line so that the king got to finish his last race with dignity and that he wasn't the last card across the finish line.
2: To me, this was less about Lightning learning to respect his elders and his heroes and more about Lightning learning to do the right thing, which he did here. Regardless, yeah. it's such a great moment. And then they managed to one-up it where he gets everything he wants, he gets the Dynaco offer, and he turns it down. I love that they did this. And this is like where you give him such a full arc. And now he's not only completely likable, he's lovable. Where was this thread throughout? You needed more sprinkles of him being a good person. That now obviously he's, he's learned all of these things. But this is a huge gesture. You needed hints of him being good. To make this make sense, it still lands very hard, but it's kind of like, wow, you're turning everything away now.
1: Yeah, I don't know if it says more about them or about us, because he is so, he's lovable by the end of the movie, and he's everything that you wanted him to be, and you don't find him to be disingenuous. You will legitimately love Lightning McQueen by the end of this movie, but it doesn't change the fact that they should have been working towards this earlier because I think it just doesn't, it, it it does a disservice to not only the story, but the rest of the characters other than doc, that he's not softening and that they're just giving him another chance. And we're going to give him another chance. And we know there's good in there. And if if you want the takeaway to be that there's good in everybody, that's nice. It's not always accurate, but it's nice um, but that's th- just not the way to go about it because, unfortunately, the more you did that, the more you kind of felt like he- he's just continuing to pull one over on people that, or cars in this case, that I guess just don't know any better. Right. That's that's the bigger issue more than anything else. Um. Do you have any other notes to add before we move on to our cast? No. All right. Let's go with... Our lead, Lightning McQueen, played by Owen Wilson. Ka-chow. Ka-chow. Wow. Um, I, <laughs> I, I. Listen. A joke. Joking aside, I love Owen Wilson. Uh, he hit that stride in like the early two thousands, where this guy just couldn't miss. Whether it was this, whether it was wedding, wedding crashers. crashers. I mean, I mean, everything this guy touched turned to gold. Um, I'm glad to see that he's back with Disney. That he's in Haunted Mansion. I've always liked him. Um, I'm 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 really glad to see that he still is continuing with Disney. If he's not a Disney legend yet, I think certainly uh, in the next couple of years he's going to earn his place as a Disney legend. Um, But he's so good. This is the thing about Owen Wilson. As far as like, you know, as as far as a dislikable, I almost called him a bad word. As far as a dislikable character goes he knocks it out of the park. As far as a character that you would take a bullet for at the end of the movie, he pulls it off. Like he everything about Lightning McQueen that works works because of him.
2: Yes, because he was able to strike that balance of Lightning being very smarmy and egotistical and then very genuine by the end of it and that all comes through in the performance. Um what's really funny is that you know, before they had to stop doing press for Haunted Mansion when they had some of the cast over at the Haunted Mansion in Disneyland. Um, Owen Wilson uh, said in an interview that uh, people are very surprised to see him and find out that he is not, in fact, just a giant race car. So it's funny that kids are coming to this realization. And now, um, you know, like the way that you, you associate Josh Gad with Olaf... And you you know Josh Gad's face on its own, or Idina Menzel, you as a Disney fan will recognize her other than Elsa. He's starting to get this recognition from the kids, which I think is very funny. I also want to talk about before we move on, just the design of this character, too. Um, I love how they did this. Um, and I I love even more. I was a big Lights Motors action fan from yes. its inception. Yeah. I thought it was such a great Behind the scenes peak, but when they added lightning to it to give the kids something to latch onto, I thought that was so brilliant. But I loved seeing him come to life in three dimensions that way, and getting to see and really appreciate the design of the character.
1: Yes, that's how you retrofit IP into a otherwise flawless uh, performance or show or ride.
2: What a concept!
1: Uh, Paul Newman, the late Paul Newman, plays Doc Hudson. I mean, I love Paul Newman. He's Reggie Dunlop. He's Cool Hand Luke. You know, he is a legend. Um, This was, I believe, his last voice acting role. He passed away, I think, two or three years after uh, this film came out. But um, he's, he's so good. And he really does an incredible job of carrying the weight of the film, carrying the mystery of the film. I think that this is the kind of actor that you need in that role because he carries so much of the intrigue. And you need to like him, but but you also need to not be able to trust him. Just everything that they did, he was the absolute perfect casting in this film.
2: Yeah. Such a well-written character. The arc is incredible and it's topped off by an amazing performance. Um, my only critique really is just that I wish that he would have administered the punishment in the beginning and stuck to it without Sally having to nudge him. Um, but that's not a knock on the actor at all. Um, it's, it's one minor thing that I can overlook.
1: Let's talk about Sally voiced by Bonnie Hunt. Um, I love the story that they gave her. Um, I think Bonnie Hunt did a great job with the character. The only issue with the character being, as you pointed out before, she seems like she's a little too quick to trust Lightning McQueen, who's done nothing to show that he is trustworthy whatsoever.
2: Right. Um, and again, I bump on the part where she gets annoyed at him just because he's not yet what she wants him to be. Um, But as far as having that driving force to better yourself, she is a great anchor for him. Um, And again, I love the performance. I mean, I love Bonnie Hunt. Um, Jumanji is still one of my favorites. Um, So I was happy to see her in this.
1: Mater, voiced by Larry the Cable Guy. Again, you're talking about 2006 Blue Collar Comedy Tour had come out a couple of years prior. I think the sequel had just come out or was coming out within a year of this film. So uh, Larry the Cable Guy at the top of his game. um, He's he's just so good. You know, like I know his style of comedy is not for everybody, but he as a persona is for everybody. I love Larry the Cable Guy.
2: Yeah, this was just some incredible casting and I love that it doesn't seem like they asked him to tone down anything for this performance. It was just, you're hiring Larry the Cable Guy, you're getting what you get, and they just let him go for it. Um, and and he was a really good get at the time because I think people forget how popular the Blue, co- the blue Collar Comedy Tour was and... You know, how big the four of them were as a unit. They were like the original Impractical Jokers. I think people forget that now because Jeff Foxworthy went on to do Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? And they've all obviously pursued other things. But for that time, it was Impractical Joker levels of fandom.
1: Yeah. If and I had
2: to compare it to something.
1: Sort of lost to time.
2: Yeah. But really Larry the Cable or I should say Mater is just leading the charge of this rich cast of characters which we've not talked about enough. We've talked about how amazing Radiator Springs is, but we've not what makes it so amazing other than the animation itself is the personas that they gave every one of these business owners. And this is to me where the the heart and humor come from the most.
1: Tony Shaloub plays Luigi Monk Galaxy Quest you throw a dart at anything Toby uh, Tony Shaloub has been in and you're hitting a banger.
2: Yeah, we didn't nearly talk about Luigi enough and what a role he plays because the tires are the first thing that Lightning has done when he decides to give everybody a little bit of business. Um and I love how lightning turns the keys over to him. No pun intended. And it's like, you're the expert and, you know, Luigi fits him with these really snazzy tires. And I, I love the role that him and Guido play in the pit crew later on. Like really Guido is such an unsung hero of this film. And I love the way that him and Luigi bounce off of each other. They are one of like the greatest Pixar duos or Disney duos of all time.
1: Yeah, Guido voiced by Guido Crowoni. Uh, yeah, sure. Boy, did I eat that up. Um, Cheech Marin as Ramon. I love that Cheech Marin continues to pop up. Yep. We had him in Oliver and Company. We,
2: Lion King.
1: Like, the. for what it's worth, for anybody that watched Cheech and Chong, If there's one guy you sit there and go, he's going to get a Disney contract. It would be Cheech Marin, but Cheech Marin has a Disney contract and he keeps popping up. And I'm so glad that he does. I love Cheech Marin.
2: No, because every single time you hear him, it's just always perfect. And it's amazing that he can go from this little spitfire chihuahua to a menacing hyena to this now. And, you wanna go low riding with I I love him and Flo together. It's incredible.
1: Yeah, Jennifer Lewis plays Flo. I love I love Flo's drive-in. I I love the look. I love the aesthetic. I love her as a character. I love her attitude. I love her disposition. Like she of everything here. Which is kind of funny to say, considering that uh, Paul Newman's in the movie. If there's anything in this film that really feels old school, that feels of that era, it's Flo.
2: Yeah, I mean, the the diner is just incredible. That is like your show-stopping set piece there, other than the cozy cone. But I think part of that is just because of Flo's persona. And she's just got this warm, welcoming inviting uh, way about her. And I mean, clearly it worked because we're going to see her three years later as Mama Odie in Princess and the Frog.
1: Yeah. Uh, George Carlin as Fillmore. I mean...
2: It doesn't get any better than that.
1: it It really doesn't.
2: I wish that he had more speaking lines, but for what it is, him and Sarge opposite each other is perfection. I love that they're... Not only, you know, like this odd couple that's at, at odds with each other, but their businesses are right next to each other. So you've always got this great quibbling between them. It's wonderful.
1: Michael Keaton plays Chick Hicks, and I wish that we would have gotten a little bit more out of him. Of course, we're not, because the whole film is going to be set in Radiator Springs. But Michael Keaton does such a good job sort of playing the bad guy. Um, because up to this, in in terms of Disney or Pixar, like, we know him as Ken, right. which is phenomenal, by the way. Um, but I like him in the role. I think he does a really good job with
2: it. Um, absolutely. I mean, he always does. But what I really like, too, about Chick Hicks, too, um, that cheesy delivery of playing off of lightning's kachow when it's a chug, a It is so grating every time I hear it. But that's that's not a knock at his performance. It's supposed to annoy you and it does because it's perfect. Um, So I love that it starts out as lightning's diss of your thunder. Cause thunder always comes after lightning and chick embraces that, but not in like a positive way. Yeah. He takes it and runs with it, but it's just cringy.
1: And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Uh, Richard Petty here, playing the king. Everybody knows if you are an NASCAR fan, Richard Petty is the king. That's his nickname. It will be forever. He will forever be the king. So the fact that you've got a king in this film, it had to be Richard Petty. Uh, Again, not a ton of dialogue, not a ton of lines, but because he plays such a crucial part in the film, we have to give him... Uh, his flowers for this. I think he did a really good job.
2: Speaking of flowers, before we move on, I do wanna call out two other Pixar favorites that are in this. Uh John Ratzenberger as Mac and Joe Ranth as uh red and uh one of th- a couple of the other background cars. Um, you know, these are Pixar legends. Um so you love seeing them here. And and with Mac too, these end credits are everything. They are the best end credits that they've ever done where you have cars at a drive-in watching Pixar's other greatest hits and then Mac is calling out what do they get the same actor every single time? Um it's just great. Really funny.
1: Yeah. Uh let's talk about the soundtrack a little bit because the movie is not it's not a musical.
2: That would be uncalled
1: for. You you don't have um you don't have these uh Cars jumping out into random song, but there were just a few bangers that came off of this soundtrack that went on to be major radio hits. That we kind of be remiss for not discussing them.
2: Well, I think that they're so necessary here because you know, I talked about this before, it's a cars movie, you know, you're going to see them drive you're going to do a couple of montages. So the music is very, very important. The score is great in and of itself, but I love that they, they managed to do the soundtrack and have songs where you hear lyrics, not just music. And they wove it in so perfectly. Like I can't imagine this film without these hits.
1: Right. And Randy Newman, uh, composed and performed a lot of the music, mostly the score more than anything else. But let's just, I'm only going to mention a couple of songs here, starting with real gone by Cheryl Crow. It's a um, great open. It's a great open. I love Cheryl Crow. You've seen her. She's one I've always wanted to see, but I think that this was a great, great means of opening. It played off of the idea of that opening race scene. So well, I mean, absolutely flawless.
2: Yeah, to me, it's reminiscent of like when they got Faith Hill to sing the Monday Night Football Open. Um, I think it just works so well here, but it is perfectly balanced. Like they they bring it out just in time so they can let all of those all that great sound design come through uh, in the crash sequence. But um, it just works in harmony with that open so perfectly.
1: Yeah. And Life is a Highway, Rascal Flats. It's a cover. Um, but obviously, this became the biggest commercial hit off of the soundtrack.
2: I was gonna say I think this is one of those rare instances where the cover is better than the original and certainly more memorable.
1: It took me some time to warm up to the idea because it took me, it took me a few years to even warm up to Rascal Flats. Admittedly, I was not their biggest fan for a considerable amount of time. But after having seen them in concert, because I was there for the opener, actually. Luke Bryan was opening when he was an up-and-comer, and that's who I was there to see, but I stuck around for Rascal Flats. Um, after seeing them and how much they really did care about their fans, what they put into the performance, I like them. Am I going to tell you I love them? I'll probably never love them, but definitely my stance softened on them, and I will go so far as to agree with you. I think that this is one of the rare instances where the cover was better than the original
2: and they really cared about it too like i remember when they were brought out on the promo circuit for this film they seemed to really embrace it well they were
1: megastars at the time yeah right so having them behind it certainly helped our town written by randy newman sung by james taylor by the way uh really it's a heart it's a beautiful and heartbreaking scene at the same time yeah
2: um I feel like the song is a little bit on the nose, but it hits you like When She Loved Me hits you.
1: It does. Uh, Route 66, covered by John Mayer. Um, Love or hate John Mayer and... and there seems to be no in between. <laughs> yeah. you are on one side of the fence or the other. Don't ask the Swifties. Um, <laughs> this was a good cover. I I like I like that. I believe we do hear both versions of Route sixty six on the soundtrack. Um, but I love his cover. Where they put it in the film makes a lot of sense, and I think that he was the right person to have recorded.
2: Yeah, not only am I Team Taylor, but I've just never really been a fan of John Mayer. I just. Don't, it, I hate saying it. It's like Dave Matthews. I just don't get the hype. But here I see it because he sounds great for this.
1: I like both Dave Matthews and John Mayer. Would I ever see them in concert? I probably would because they're such talented musicians that I think it would just be nice to see them. Um, am I ever going to go out and buy any of, the, any of the records? No. Like, I don't. That's weird. I'll go. Sp- well, that's the thing, right? I won't spend $12.99 on a CD we don't really do that anymore um, but I'll spend 75 to go see them in concert once, but I mean it's an experience. I, I can at least appreciate uh, good musicians and and regardless of how you feel about him, it's it's hard to say that the guy isn't an outstanding guitar player but whatever I'm not I'm not putting my target on my back to Swifties you, people are crazy. Um, <laughs> all right, uh, final thoughts on cars. I'll, I'll, I'll just go so I can get this out of the way because I don't have much to say that hasn't already been said. It's a near-perfect movie. I'm not going to rehash all the reasons why it's not perfect. You've already listened to me say it over and over and over again. It's frustrating that it's not a perfect film. Um, I, I feel this, this kind of makes me feel the way I feel when I think about Coco. When I think about a film that should be perfect and it's not. Um, this is very similar to me. It's not number 20. It's a minimum top 10. I might not give it top 5, but I would put it in the top 10. Um, Maybe on a good day i put it in the top 5, depending on my mood. But somewhere between 5 and 10 to me is where this ranks. It's near perfect. I absolutely love it. I think that the characters are great. I think the marketing is great. I think that the land they developed is great. I think the whole franchise, the idea of this is great. Not going to be my conversation I have with you next week. But um, everything about it I love. It's near perfect. I wish it was. It's not. That's my biggest frustration when it comes to Cars.
2: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It it physically hurts me to say it's not perfect because I want it to be so much. But the biggest issue with it, really the only issue with it, is that you lose your main character. You can't have that. Your main character needs to hold you through the entire thing, and Lightning just doesn't. He gets there in the end, but like I said, too little, too late. Um, if we're going off of animation alone, then it's perfect. The way that they captured something that we are so familiar with in reality and made it believable, not not just believable, just made it look accurate. And like I said, you would notice it more if they didn't get it perfect. Yeah. It would stand out like a sore thumb, but they did. It is the animation is just flawless. I would go so far as to say is other than Coco, this is the best Pixar animation ever. And that holds to this day. Um, but even though it's not perfect, I still love it. The re watch, the rewatchability is a thousand percent there. Uh, I, in fact, I don't go back to this one enough, um, Agreed. but I certainly will moving forward.
1: We want to know what you have to say about cars. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at monoreal radio, or you can email us monoreal radio at gmail.com. News of the week is coming
0: up, but first a quick break. When we were planning our first family trip to Disney world, uh, Jackie was the first person that we thought of.
2: Jackie helped us with every step of the planning. She helped us pick the right time of year to visit, to make sure we don't have big lines, and she helped us pick the right hotel for our itinerary and our budget.
0: She also gave us uh, great recommendations when it came to scheduling our parks, our dining reservations, and the attractions.
2: These days, it feels like there's a lot that goes into planning a Disney trip, and there's a lot that we just didn't know about Disney World, and we're just so thankful for Jackie's advice in making it all
0: a little bit easier. Yeah, when we got to the property, we we realized we wanted to add on another park day, so we texted Jackie early in the morning, and she got back to us right away, and that really helped us make it happen. We had some amazing meals and drinks. We went to Cinderella's Royal Table. We went to Oga's Cantina. We rode Rise of the Resistance without waiting on a long line. And on Jackie's recommendation, we saw the
2: Epcot fireworks from the Skyliner.
0: This was an unforgettable family trip to Disney World and... Jackie made it happen. Thank you, Jackie. So
2: if you are interested in completely free assistance planning your Disney vacation, you can get in touch with me through any of our social media outlets at Monoreal Radio on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can email me directly at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I at MagicalVacationPlanner.com, and you're going to want to because we have some big Disney foodie news coming up. Hi, this is Kelly from Carmen Kismet, your official Monorail news sponsor, and I am very excited to throw it over to Sean and Jackie to talk all about the Disney news, but before I do that, I want to make sure that I share with with you guys, where you can check out all of my Disney inspired art at karma and com.
1: Listeners of the show get a ten percent discount with the code monorail ten at checkout to see everything that Kelly has to offer. It's online at karmaandkismetdesigns.com. That's karma, the letter N, kismetdesigns.com. Yes. Uh, lots of foodie news this week. Let's start talking about it.
2: Yes. This first one was a pleasant surprise because this is something that we never got to check out. And honestly, I thought it was going away for good. Uh, Trails End is coming back and they are going to be reopening with enhanced looks and enhanced menus. Um, so Disney Parks posted some pictures. They got a strawberry shortcake. They got some pizzas. Um Their cocktail menu looks really good, and they have a dessert trio. So this is one I'm excited to try.
1: Yeah, I saw the pictures, and on the surface, everything looks good. Um, Yeah, something different, something new. Um, I would definitely get in on that. Um, Plus, I
2: like Fort Wilderness too. It's, it's just a nice, it's place a cool to, spot. It's
1: a nice place to hang out, especially once people start really getting t- into the Halloween decorations, the Christmas decorations. Then it's a really good time of the year to be there. Definitely. Speaking of Halloween, we also got kind of a menu drop for Mickey's Not So Scary Halloween Party.
2: It's a big menu drop. Um, Disney eats released the full foodie guide for Not So Scary. Um, seeing you know a couple of the classics the dirt with the gummy worm you know the crushed oreos and gummy worms coming out that's pretty much a staple um it looks like they're going for a lot more savory items this year um and then some of these they're They're really thinking outside of the box. They've got an apple fritter milkshake, which is going to be available at Anti-Gravity's Galactic Goodies. Um, Salted caramel milkshake topped with green apple, whipped cream, and an apple fritter. That's different. I mean, an apple is a pretty classic fall staple. So is the salted caramel. But um, I feel like this is really outside the box for Disney.
1: It is. And we have some of the more um, traditional items like the mummy treat which is the pastry filled uh chocolate hazelnut filling it's that pastry cake from cheshire cat and people know that you can get treats like that from there kind of on the regular they're going to do a queen of hearts slushy which is going to be a frozen chocolate slushy with a black cherry puree topped with whipped cream and a uh, crown shaped piece of chocolate and then they're going to have some joffrey's brew um what I'm surprised with though is that they kind of went away from desserts and focused a lot more like you said on savory, but specifically like spicy savory.
2: Yes, cuz I'm seeing a lot of like things that they're trying to theme like like from hell and they're just throwing those spicy cheetos on it. Which is yeah. which is fine. I don't know that I'm going to personally eat a cupcake with spicy Cheetos on it, but um I I like the direction that they're taking. It almost seems like they're trying to channel in some Epcot food and wine. Um, but I like the effort.
1: The effort is there. I think for me personally, it's just gonna it's going to eliminate a big part of your audience because M- almost everything that they're doing that's savory is spicy when it comes to, like, an entree item. You've got a Cosmic Rays a terrifying twice-spiced chicken sandwich, the Snarling Sub, which is a meatball s- sub with spicy marinara. Um,
2: that I would try. I saw the picture of it. That looks really, really good.
1: Yeah. Fryer's Nook, they go into Pain and Panic, a Pain and Panic bratwurst, uh, sweet and spicy onion relis, and sriracha mayo. Um The pain and panic loaded tots, again, sweet and spicy, sriracha mayo, and crumbled bratwurst. So basically what this is, is this is the bratwurst, but instead of the roll, you're getting it on tater tots. But, like, everything about it is exactly the same. Like, points for trying, but um, the only other thing that I'm seeing here that isn't, like, super spicy that you could call, like, an entree item is the loaded sweet potato fries. Cinnamon sugar, marshmallow cream, butterscotch chips, and toffee pieces— it it kind of it's an entree that sort of leans into the desserts, you know, and then from there the black velvet whoopie pie, uh, the pumpkin cheesecake that's at the Main Street Bakery, and the cinnamon roll also at the bakery. It it's just I don't know there they it then you get into Pecos Bills. It's a Cajun burger. The bucket of bones is bone in piggy wings with jalapenos. It. I feel like they had to do something here that you could gear towards Halloween that was an entree, not a dessert, that didn't have to have heat to it. That's my only thing.
2: Yeah. I mean, we're not spicy people. We don't typically go for things like that. I mean, certain certain things I'll eat. Like, I'll do certain Thai foods or um, I don't mind a little heat, but... These are a lot of things that I would normally steer away from. But what I do appreciate, like I said, is that they are trying to really change up the menu because I feel like Not So Scary did get a reputation for being very dessert heavy. Like even last year we got the what was that candy corn thing that we ended up liking? That candy corn cake. It, yeah. was, it was a piece like of cake corn that looked bread. like an
1: ear of corn. Mm-hmm. It was delicious. Yes. And it wasn't overly sweet.
2: But I think that got so popular, that's probably why they're taking it in this other direction now of actually incorporating more flavors. And I think that they are trying to appeal to more adults because I think before last year, it just had the reputation of being very, you know, cake and cookie heavy and you know the most that you would get was the thing of dirt that the kids like
1: yeah the dirt cup which you've been getting at ground round since the 80s yeah
2: or that you know your mom makes to bring to school for halloween right um but yeah no i i definitely appreciate the effort put put forth by uh the disney chefs i think this is well done
1: i mean when you compare this to the toad burger that they did for the 50th which was just a cheeseburger with two <laughs> olives for eyes and a and a, a pickle hanging out like a tongue, like yeah, Michelin star for this. Yeah. But I just basically what this is going to mean for me, and I mean that was kind of just like a quick recap of what they had. But like as you were talking, like I flipped through everything. There's literally not one entree item that they developed that isn't totally spicy. So it's gonna end up being me getting like corn dog nuggets. <laughs>
2: Or Pinocchio's Village House. Or they Pinoc- have great Caesar salad.
1: Yeah, and then getting, Snacking the, des- it up. getting the dessert options um, in between trick-or-treating. But we're interested in knowing what you have to say about the uh, food options that are being dropped this week, uh, whether they be the upgraded dining locations or the new menu items for Mickey's Not-So-Scary Halloween Party. You can let us know uh, your level of excitement on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio, or you can email us monorealradio at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for joining us this and every week on Monoreal Radio. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and rate us on your podcast platform of choice. I just gave you all of that social media. We are also on TikTok and threads at Monoreal Radio. And for links to everything related to the show, it is going to be online at monorealradio.com. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone.